This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWRA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And with me again is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hey there, Darren. Now, we have not recorded a news analysis podcast since early July. And I know I say this almost every episode, but good grief, a lot has happened since then. And especially in the past few weeks with today's recording date being Monday the 19th of August. So we'll kick things off with the Australian Foreign and Defence Ministers meeting with their US counterparts for the annual OSMIN consultations. Next, we'll try to cover at least some of the issues raised in recent weeks regarding the Australia-China bilateral relationship, in particular the Andrew Hastie op-ed and Hong Kong-related protests occurring in Australia. Finally, we'll step up to the South Pacific and the tiny island of Tuvalu, which hosted the Pacific Island Forum recently. Let's get started. So first we're going to begin with OSMIN, or the Australian-United States Ministerial Consultations, which are an opportunity for the two governments, foreign and defence ministers, to meet and discuss issues of mutual importance. Of course, within the context of the Security Alliance and an otherwise very close working relationship. In early August, Australian Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and Defence Minister Linda Reynolds hosted their American counterparts, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the recently confirmed Secretary of Defence Mark Esper for the 29th OSMIN in Sydney. For these kinds of events, it's always best to start with the joint statement, or the communique, which as we've discussed previously is usually prepared well in advance. After reading it, I personally took the following points away. First, Australia and the US emphasise the need for a, quote, networked structure of alliances and partnerships to maintain an Indo-Pacific that is secure, open, inclusive and rules-based, end quote, including strong support for ASEAN. Second, the expressed uh, commitment to trilateral cooperation with Japan and, in the very next paragraph, to collaborating with an increasingly important India. So not a quad per se, more of a three plus one perhaps. Third, the two committed to deepen cooperation in the Pacific region through trilateral cooperation with Pacific Island countries, and this was a timely commitment with the Pacific Island Forum occurring later that month. Fourth, and perhaps most notable, were the wording around serious concerns expressed regarding, quote, the continued militarisation of disputed features in the South China Sea, end quote with both sides, quote, strongly objecting to coercive unilateral actions by any claimant state that could alter the status quo and increase tensions, end quote. Now, if anyone doubted whether this was a reference to China, they also mentioned, quote, the potential establishment of new military bases, end quote, with the statement explicitly referencing reporting recently about the possibility of a base being developed in Cambodia, by the PRC. 
So, Alan, to my mind, these are all fairly straightforward outcomes and arguably not the most interesting story from the meetings. But before we get to the other matters, can I ask you, did anything jump out at you from the joint statement or from the communique? And is this far from subtle elision to China normal in these kinds of statements? Well, you're right that these are often rather unsurprising statements, but they're nevertheless worth studying because they represent a snapshot of the official mind, if you can call it that, at any particular point in time. Just for interest, I went back and compared the Osmin statement from 2014, which was just five years ago. We had this same coalition government in Australia, but the Obama administration in the US. Now, apart from the reassertions of the importance of the alliance, which are a permanent element of these statements, it looked like such a different world. The statement is much broader in its uh, international range. And the big difference is the way China now pervades the entire statement while hardly being named at all. I think there are only two references to China in it, but it's the phantom at the back mm, of every mm. uh, paragraph. Uh, what was noticeable too were the uh, the issues that weren't mentioned at all this time, though they have been in the past, like climate change and international trade. Ah, interesting. Well, let's then turn to what was said on the sidelines and around the meeting. And I have a big picture question, Alan, but let me lead into it with two specific issues, both of which relate to requests, you could call them, made of us by Washington. Well, one request that was definitely made and a second that was apparently not made but certainly discussed. So first, the request that was definitely made of Australia was to participate in a coalition named Operation Sentinel to protect international shipping in the Persian Gulf from the Iranian threat. In July, a British tanker was seized by the Iranian military, and along with other tanker seizures, there have been some skirmishes of sorts between the US and Iranian forces, in particular when a US drone was shot down. Washington said that it had asked, amongst others, Germany, the UK, Japan, France and South Korea, as well as Australia, to participate. And our Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds, confirmed a formal request had been made. Now, Germany has explicitly rejected joining, while the UK has agreed. Oddly, China expressed some support for the idea too. Now, let's not forget the major impetus for these heightened tensions is arguably Trump's withdrawal from the 2015 nuclear deal. At Osmin, Senator Reynolds said that Australia was carefully considering what was a complex request, but no decision had been made. The following week, the Prime Minister said that Australian participation would be conditional on it being a multilateral initiative with an exclusive focus on protecting shipping and be designed to de-escalate tensions. Now, Alan, it's reasonable, I think, to say that given the context of the problematic behaviour by the United States and the Trump administration on the Iran issue, it's not 100% obvious that joining this coalition is in Australia's interest. I mean, can we say no? Would we say no? And if we did, would there be any consequences? It's it's interesting to me that Morrison seems to be shaping up as a leader who's precise and careful in the way he deals with international issues. Freedom of shipping through the Straits of Hormuz and, and you know, in fact, through all international straits under international law is clearly important to Australia and directly connected to our interests as an island trading nation. 
The question for the government, which it seems to be handling quietly and effectively, is how to separate that proper Australian national interest from the quite different question of US-Iranian relations and avoiding being caught up mm. uh, inadvertently in a US-Iran uh, fight. That's especially true because, uh, of course, Australia takes a different position from Washington on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal signed by the Obama administration. As the PM hinted, I suspect that under specific conditions, Australia would be willing to make a contribution to an international task force, but that we'd need to see other countries with much more direct interests in Persian Gulf shipping also involved. And ironically, as you say, uh, China is one of those uh, those countries with a more direct uh, interest. Mm-hmm. Well, second, the request that was not apparently made comes out of a public event featuring the two foreign ministers in Sydney, in which the moderator, Tom Switzer, raised the topic of the US's withdrawal from the INF Treaty, which had formally happened just two days prior. For background, the INF Treaty limited the deployment of missiles between the ranges of 500 and 5,500 kilometres, and this was between the US and the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And so the US withdrawal in August would, in theory at least, potentially make it useful to station missiles around the world, including in our region. So Switzer asked Secretary Pompeo whether Australia should expect missiles to be deployed in Darwin. Now, Pompeo did not deny this as a possibility, and Senator Payne, while steadfastly refusing to characterise any such hypothetical move as being about China, did say that Australia respected and supported the INF Treaty withdrawal. The Prime Minister stepped in the following day, stating explicitly that no request was made or anticipated, and that he thought he could, quote, rule a line under that, end quote. The Global Times weighed in, expressing Beijing's clear displeasure and ominously declaring that, quote, any country accepting US deployment would be against China and Russia directly or indirectly and draw fire against itself, end quote. While a foreign ministry spokesman said the PRC would, quote, take all necessary measures to safeguard national security interests. Alan, what is your assessment of this discussion? Is it an initial step by both governments to lay the groundwork for a deployment in the months or years ahead? Well, again, what was interesting here was the unusual clarity of the PM's response to questions. Uh, He could have taken refuge in the line that we've had no request and we wouldn't make a decision until then or some other weasel words. But he said very directly, and I'm quoting him, that's not something the government would consider I think I can rule a line under it. Now, that seemed to be a pretty clear message to Washington, don't ask. And, of course, the presence of American nuclear missiles in Australia would be a huge change in our defence posture. These wouldn't be joint facilities like Pine Gap because American missiles would only ever be under the control of the United States. Hmm. The other major feature of the Osmin talks was a willingness of US officials to criticise China quite sharply. The clearest distillation probably came from Pompeo at the public event when he said, quote, you can sell your soul for a pile of soybeans or you can protect your people, end quote. But even at the formal ministerial press event, 
Pompeo referred to investment, presumably Chinese, that, quote, mires our friends in debt and corruption. This sets up my broader question, Alan. Australia is often discussed as being squeezed between these two major powers, and the space between this rock and that hard place is getting narrower and narrower. It's easy to identify squeezing, I think, from the Chinese side, whether it's a delay of Australian wine imports here, a freezing of diplomatic meetings there, some robust criticism of Australia in the Chinese state media, and so on. But what I'm wondering, Alan, is did this Osmin meeting reflect what it looks like to be squeezed by the United States? And I ask that with respect to all three issues that I've just raised. You know, one, the explicit request to participate in yet another Middle East military operation that may not be in our interest. Two, the floating of a radical proposal that would certainly be provocative to Beijing. And three, sharp criticism of the PRC from a microphone in Sydney. If we think of the PRC as an expert practitioner in coercion, how would you characterise what the Trump administration is doing here? Well, you, you know my position on coercion, uh, Darren. I, I think it's a permanent feature of international politics. Getting others to do what you want by applying the lowest necessary degree of pressure is always an attractive option. Australia tries to apply it in the South Pacific. China does it a lot, and so does the US. I think the US is certainly squeezing us, but that's exactly what diplomacy is uh, is about. I think it could have been done better. Soybeans was hardly the most relevant example for an Australian audience, but I'm not in the least bit surprised by it. Obama made an even sharper criticism of China from the Chamber of the House of Representatives in Canberra. So I don't think there's much new here. Well, what did you think of these events, Darren? I think there is a difference between being squeezed, if we're going to call it that, by the Trump administration versus any other, can I say, more normal US government. It's much harder, I think, to countenance big changes that will obviously inflame tensions with China, such as accepting missile deployments, when the administration you're working with is otherwise so inconsistent and unpredictable and sometimes simply odious. But perhaps that gives us a bit of a silver lining. The consequence of saying no, should we do it, might be less for us since there is not so much that Trump can do, at least in the security realm, I think, that would harm us in the short term and that could not be repaired down the track with a different administration, one perhaps with a more coherent strategy that is genuinely looking to build a coalition of like-minded countries to achieve shared aims. So for now, you know, I would go slow on any requests that are a step too far, and it seems like the Prime Minister has done a very good job of that but otherwise try to keep things on positive terms. And of course, if it came to it, perhaps the Prime Minister could write some handwritten letters to Donald Trump, because that seems to work so well for Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Sure has. Anyway, uh, let's turn to our second item, which is the Australia-China bilateral relationship. And obviously with China, such a prominent feature of the discussions and analysis surrounding Osmin, it's natural that we should seg into, into the PRC bilateral. Now, there are two items I want to focus on in particular. And listeners, please bear with me because both are complex and I want to take some care in how I frame the discussion and my questions to Alan. The first item is the now notorious 8th of August op-ed by Government MP Andrew Hastie, the head of Parliament's Intelligence Committee. 
The piece in the nine newspapers attracted an inordinate amount of attention for its use of a particular analogy that the West's belief that economic liberalization would cause democratization in China was analogous to France's belief that the Maginot Line would defend it against Germany in 1940. While Hasty did not explicitly compare the Chinese government to Nazi Germany, for many who disagreed with the piece, that analogy featured prominently in their criticisms. Whether the analogy was appropriate or not, Hasty's main argument was that Australia must adapt its thinking about China if we are to, quote, preserve our sovereignty, security and democratic convictions, end quote. The most notable fault line in reactions to the piece was within Hasty's own Liberal Party. And to the extent this has become public, the economics versus security camps were quite clear. Peter Dutton, the Minister for Home Affairs, of course a security portfolio, supported Hasty, claiming that the government and opposition MPs have real concerns about China. As Dutton reflected, quote, there is no point pretending there's nothing to see on China, end quote. From the economic portfolios, we saw Matthias Cormann, the leader of the government in the Senate and the finance minister, criticising Hastie's argument as clumsy and inappropriate, suggesting that the comments distracted from an important conversation. Then Simon Birmingham, the trade minister, appeared on ABC's Sunday morning flagship political show Insiders and laid out a two-step test that his colleagues in government should ask themselves before they make public comments on sensitive political matters. One, is the making of those comments in a public way necessary? And two, is it helpful to Australia's national interest? Now, my sense is that Birmingham believed Hastie's intervention had not passed this test. Finally, I would note that Labor's Jim Chalmers, who is the shadow treasurer, called Hastie's comments extreme and overblown and unwelcome. Alan, there has been a lot written about this piece, both at home and abroad. So before I ask for your opinion on its merits, can I start off by asking, who do you think Hastie's likely intended audience was for this piece? Well, like all politicians, um, Andrew Hastie wanted a large public audience, and that's a perfectly reasonable goal. And the best way of attracting an audience is to say something that will shock the Twitterverse and the commentariat. And I suspect that's what accounts for the uh, the Maginot line line, if you like. We can come back to the actual content, which I thought didn't actually say much. But one audience, therefore, was the general public. And he seems to have achieved that goal very successfully. And a second objective, and I think you alluded to it really was probably signalling within the Liberal Party itself to his fellow members about where he stands and his aspirations. Uh, that's not to say that the underlying sentiment of the article didn't represent his real views. He's clearly highly suspicious of China. So if I can turn then to Trade Minister Birmingham's two-step test of necessity and helpfulness, what do you think about those criteria in the context of Australian foreign policy and the policy-making process, Alan? In other words, is Australia served well or poorly by the ability for government backbenchers, in particular, to speak out in ways that might 
deviate from the official line? Simon Birmingham's message was addressed to his government colleagues. So it was a um, a message about party discipline. And personally, party indiscipline is always much more fun for the rest of us. Coalition backbenchers are traditionally freer than their ALP counterparts to comment outside of agreed party lines. Though it has to be said that Hasty is rather more senior as a committee chair than the you know backbench member for wherever. So I'm in favour of lots more contributions to the public debate from politicians and, as we've discussed in the last few episodes, within the bounds of possibility from public servants as well. And you're in favour of those contributions even when they might land us in hot water with our largest trading partner? Well, look, if our largest trading partner can't distinguish between the formal position of the government and the remarks of backbenchers and other members of the commentariat, then its embassy in Canberra just isn't doing its job. But I'll throw it back to you, Darren. What were your thoughts about it? I think there is definite merit in having a disciplined foreign policy where every action is calculated and a national government keeps a a watertight consistency in its messaging. I saw discipline as one of the greatest strengths of Julie Bishop's tenure as foreign minister. She stuck to her brief, she prosecuted a clear case and did not allow herself to riff on the issue of the day or get distracted. And I assume this was because she believed that Australia was most effective on the world stage when its leaders kept that discipline. If I look around to our neighbours in the region, Singapore is obviously the prime example of a small nation state that is very effective in part because of the messaging discipline of its entire government. But Hasty is not in the cabinet and he's not part of Australia's externally facing leadership team. So I do see benefits in someone in his position articulating a clear view that is thoughtful and respectful and not utterly devoid of merit. Australia is an open society and that means we are free to conduct these kinds of difficult debates out in the open. This not only benefits the Australian public, I think, it's a public good whose benefits spread across the region and the world. This kind of vigorous debate on China, and the United States for that matter, is more the exception than the norm across our region. And there are various reasons for this that I don't want to go into now. Rather, I simply want to note that where other countries and other policy-making communities and other general publics are able to observe our debate, read a piece like Hasty's online, and then read the scathing criticisms as well as those who are more supportive, I would like to think that whole exercise informs them and in some way helps improve their policymaking in their countries in these difficult areas. Do you have any reaction to that, Alan? And finally, what did you think of the merits of the hasty piece? Well, look, I agree with with all that. I, I just wish we were debating a piece that had to said something more concrete because despite all the publicity and the fuss, I'm I'm really hard-pressed to see what Hasty was actually saying beyond signalling China as a threat. When you read the op-ed, there's a disappointing absence of useful advice about what to do. Hasty says quite correctly that Australia must hold on to our sovereignty and prosperity and balance security and trade. Tick. Lots of people are saying that. He says this will be immensely difficult because we can't forsake the US or disengage from China. Agree. 
We have to be clear-eyed, he writes. We're resetting the terms of our engagement with China, and this is a quote from him, to preserve our sovereignty, security, and democratic convictions as we also reap the benefits of prosperity that come from our mutually beneficial trade relationship. But the problem with that is that no one side sets the terms for any bilateral relationship. It's always a negotiation. But my disappointment is that he has nothing to say about how we do this, and that's the whole nub of our problem. He then goes on to the lines that got the publicity, and in particular this one. The West once believed that economic liberalisation would naturally lead to democratisation in China. This was our Maginot line. It would keep us safe. Now, look, I think this is a straw man. I know many Australians, officials and politicians who have worked in and on China over the past 30 years. And I simply don't know any who saw a straight line between economic liberalisation and democratisation. It was always clear that the Communist Party was working as hard as it could to shore up its own legitimacy by associating itself with economic growth. What many people did expect and what in fact has happened is that economic liberalisation would open up more personal space for individual Chinese citizens on where they could live, work and travel than they'd known before. But that's not the same as democratisation. I'm always wary of historical metaphors, whether it's, uh, you know, Thucydides and Sparta and Athens or Munich or the Maginot Line. And for any of our listeners who are interested in the subject, I suggest for them and for all our parliamentarians and public servants, the classic book, Thinking in Time, The Uses of History for Decision Makers by Richard Neustadt and Ernest May, both from the Kennedy School of Government. Do you share those views of mine about the piece, Darren? How did you read it? Yeah, I, I certainly didn't see the world differently after I read it. You know, it did not persuade me of anything. And I agree with your frustrations. And I think I would extend those frustrations to the criticisms of the piece as well. It's very easy to knock down any argument and perhaps particularly easy in this case. But it's much harder, I think, to lay out a positive agenda and make yourself a target, uh, as would inevitably happen if you did so. And so this is your point about the hasty piece, that he did not give us much to work with in a tangible sense. And I read the criticisms as just perpetuating my sense of loss about what to do about it all. And this is why I appreciate Hugh White uh, of the Australian National University so much. He's not afraid to present a complex understanding of the world and derive conclusions from it, even though he paints a giant bullseye on himself in the process. We need more people who aren't afraid to be counterintuitive, who aren't afraid even to be flat out wrong. One of my old teachers, uh, Robert Cohan, once used the term problematic lucidity. And what he meant by that is that it's fine to be wrong as long as you're clear when you're doing it, because in doing so, you inspire responses in others, and that's how our collective understanding of the world improves. Anyway, moving on, the second item on our China agenda is even more complicated and relates to dueling protests on Australian soil over recent weeks regarding Hong Kong. This issue came to prominence with clashes last month in July on campus at the University of Queensland, where students 
including international students from Hong Kong, had organised a peaceful protest against Hong Kong's controversial extradition law that we have talked about on a previous episode. Pro-China students were also present, playing nationalistic songs and reportedly chanting, China is great. The protest turned a little bit violent and police were called to break up the opposing crowds. Now, just this past weekend saw protests in Melbourne, Adelaide and Sydney, and the Melbourne protests in particular captured much attention and seemed to follow roughly similar dynamics to the campus protests. Now, one notable feature of these protests was the clear approval from the Chinese government. The Chinese Consul General in Brisbane affirmed the, quote, spontaneous patriotic behaviour, quote, end quote, of Chinese students at the UQ protests. The Melbourne protest got lots of attention in Chinese state media with a focus on the singing of the national anthem, protection of the Chinese flag from the rain, and the general opposing of the Hong Kong separatists. Now, these events, of course, occur against the background of media reporting in recent years of Chinese consulates contacting local governments and other actors and pressuring them to make particular decisions on sensitive matters. Our listeners might remember an infamous fish painted with the Taiwan flag being erased by the Rockhampton Council ahead of a beef industry event in May 2018 at the request of the PRC Vice Consul in Brisbane. Now, can I be clear that I wasn't at any of the protests and so I'm relying on media reporting and Twitter to know what happened, which is to say I've really got no idea. So what I want to do is approach the issue by outlining two hypothetical scenarios. In the first scenario, the protests were organised entirely by the individuals who attended them. Many of them you might describe as hot-headed youngsters who do what hot-headed youngsters tend to do. And so when you've got two opposing sides, you've got some pride, some testosterone, a bit of ideology sprinkled in, things can get a little messy. But at the end of the day, everyone is simply exercising their right to free speech. However, because reports in the media suggest that something more sinister is ultimately behind the protest movements, this ignites a frenzy in Australia about supposed foreign interference and stokes an extreme nationalist, perhaps racist set of responses, making life more difficult for Chinese living here, especially students, and damaging our bilateral relations with the PRC. So that's scenario one. In scenario two, there are employees at Chinese diplomatic missions, the embassy in Canberra and or consulates around the country, who are actively encouraging and perhaps even coordinating with key individuals to organise the protests. Moreover, they solicit or at least encourage the provision of information by Chinese nationals regarding the identities of anti-extradition law protesters and use this information in some way to intimidate or otherwise sanction these individuals or their families. So these are two hypothetical scenarios both of which I would suggest are not in Australia's national interest. In the first, residents enjoying the right of free speech and assembly unnecessarily inflame anti-Chinese tensions that harm bilateral relations. In the second, Australia's sovereignty, especially our protections on free speech and assembly, are also violated. So, Alan, my questions, who in the Australian government is responsible for working out whether either of these hypothetical scenarios are in fact true, and if a version of either is found to be true, 
What instruments does the government have at its disposal to protect our national interest? From the point of view of the security of the demonstrators and the public, responsibility lies with the state police forces, as it does for any public demonstrations. Uh, if there's any evidence that a foreign government, China in this case, uh, is engaging in interference in our domestic affairs or in uh, activities incommensurate with their diplomatic position in the official language, then the security agencies, especially ASIO, as well as DFAT, get involved. We can expel foreign diplomats who act outside the provisions of the Vienna Convention. We can publicly complain. Uh, we can draw attention to activity. But of course, Chinese citizens in Australia or Australian citizens of Chinese background are quite entitled in our democracy to take whatever position they wish on the issues involved in Hong Kong. They just have to do it within the law and without violence. Mm. On Saturday the 17th of August, China's ambassador to Australia, Cheng Jingye, issued a statement that the situation in Hong Kong was, quote, solely the internal affairs of China. And he warned foreign governments, including Australia, not to support Hong Kong's protesters or interfere. Alan, could public comments praising student protesters in Australia also by themselves constitute interference? The Chinese government might think so if the situation were reversed, but I can't get exercised about it. For Australia, non-interference in the internal affairs of another country can never mean refraining from comments on actions by other governments. So even in my view, the ambassador was expressing the view of his government and, and that's his job. But let me turn it back to you, Darren. What, what are your own reflections? Mostly, I just have questions, um, which is why I sort of took so much care in, in outlining those two hypothetical scenarios, because I just don't know what's going on, and I really want to find out. I think one thing that the PRC is usually very clear on is its own red lines. You know, They are very explicit in telling the world what they consider to constitute unacceptable interference in their own affairs. Now, the CCP, of course, lives in a very black and white world, such is the nature of an authoritarian regime. In democracies, shades of grey are everywhere. But that also, I think, provides opportunities for mischief in those shades of grey. See Russia's interference in the US election in 2016 as an example. And this mischief could involve activities that, at first blush, may not obviously appear to cross the lines of propriety. Nevertheless, I want to know what Australia's red lines are. Should it be unacceptable for a diplomatic or foreign government official, whether it's China's ambassador to Australia or Donald Trump himself, to praise protesters under any circumstance. And this, of course, is ignoring the irony of pro-China protesters who could not legally exercise their right to free speech back at home. Even more so, I want to know what, if anything, diplomatic missions are doing behind the scenes. Is there any assistance or coordination happening? Even if it doesn't rise to the level of coordination, I'm just super curious about the nature of the communications between the mission and Chinese nationals. To my knowledge, the Australian government doesn't often say very much to its own citizens abroad, except to warn them about danger. The fact that the Chinese government does things very differently, I think, is a source of uncertainty for us. But equally, I'd be curious to know if the Americans or anyone else is doing this kind of thing too. To be clear, I have no inside information on this whatsoever. It's only been speculated upon in the media. But it strikes me that knowing whether 
direct assistance or coordination is happening, or equally if it is not happening, is very much in the public interest. I don't think we can get our relationship with China right, as everyone wants to do, without having confidence in the answers to these questions. I think one more point, we talk a lot on this podcast about Australia's agency, and there are many situations that we discuss where our agency to shape external events is limited. You and I often disagree on the precise demarcation of those limits, Alan, but it seems to me that obtaining complete awareness of what is happening in our own sovereign territory and then doing whatever is necessary to safeguard our interests and values here has to be one of the policy domains in which Australia has the most agency. I therefore wonder if there could be significant benefit in the government sharing what it knows with the Australian public and the world. To use your words a few moments ago, Alan, to draw attention to what is happening. Simply doing that could have a big impact on our external environment. Do you have any response to that idea? Well, yes, but sometimes our knowledge will be ambiguous. Sometimes the government won't want to share the information they possess because it would disclose publicly how they got it. Sometimes there will be longer term interests to be considered about the most effective way of influencing China. So, look, Darren, clarity is good in principle and it's always nice to know, but clarity is not always available. Mm. Okay, well, let's move on to our third item, which is the Pacific Island Forum, which the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, participated in during the week of the 11th of August in Tuvalu. From the moment Morrison landed and was met on the tarmac by children symbolically submerged in water, climate change dominated the agenda. Pacific Island leaders pressured Morrison to agree to a communique that contained strong language on emissions reduction and coal use. However, Morrison succeeded, partly due to the consensus nature of negotiations, to force agreement on watered-down language that balanced Australian domestic political pressures with the needs of Pacific Island states. For example, language encouraging countries to revise their emissions targets to rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions turned into language calling on countries to meet their Paris Agreement obligations. Vanuatu's foreign minister described Australia as having several red lines during negotiations on which our negotiators had refused to make concessions. After the meeting finished, the Tuvaluan Prime Minister, Enele Sopoaga, expressed disappointment with the result, saying, quote, We expressed very strongly during our exchange between me and Scott Morrison. I said, you are concerned about saving your economy in Australia. I am concerned about saving my people in Tuvalu. Fijian Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama, notably attending his first Pacific Islands Forum meeting since Fiji's suspension in 2009 for refusing to call elections, although Fiji had been reinstated in 2014, gave an explosive interview in which he described Morrison's approach as, quote, very insulting and condescending. He described Morrison's focus on practical initiatives, in particular how much money Australia was giving Pacific Island countries, and wanting that acknowledged on the record as being very insulting. Though, before leaving the country, he wound back some of that language and said he respected Australia's reliance on coal. Alan, it seemed to me these negotiations were particularly fraught. It is reported that the Tongan Prime Minister even cried during the meeting. 
How does the reporting from this meeting compare to previous years? Is this par for the course or has something changed this year? Well, a couple of points, Darren. The issue of climate change was always going to be significant at this forum because it always is. You can look, you can go back before the Nui Declaration on Climate Change, which the forum issued in 2008, to see that. It's been on the agenda for a very long time. And the fact that the meeting was held in Tuvalu, one of the most threatened states, was always going to make it a focus. Sea level rise is a problem over the longer term, but if, like Tuvalu, you're an atoll state which rises to an average height of just two metres above sea level, then tidal surges and extreme weather events like cyclones are an even more immediate concern. The government obviously recognised this in advance with the announcement of a $500 million aid package on climate measures, although the fact that this was simply a repackaging of existing aid money took some of the gloss off. Even so, you can see from the length of the negotiations and some of the comments afterwards that you quoted that this was a more than usually hard discussion. Now, Australia is the big guy on the Pacific block, and to some extent, we're always going to be a convenient target of criticism for the smaller states. That just goes with our size. And our New Zealand friends, I have to say, have been known to take advantage of this for their own purposes from time to time. Any communique represents an agreed position for those who sign it, or if you're Donald Trump at the G20, you can dissent from it. So as Penny Wong acknowledged, it was never realistic to expect the PM to sign on to the phasing out of coal exports. Ironically, really, it was Morrison's own work on the Pacific step up and the geopolitical focus on China in the Pacific, which helped attract media attention to an event that's often been hard pressed in the past to generate uh, that level of public interest. Yeah, it it was the lead story on Insiders on Sunday, which was very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. If it is indeed true that the PM was focused on what Australia has provided to the region in terms of financial assistance and aid, that actually makes me think of China, given Financial resources are one of the key elements of Beijing's pitch to this region and to the world. And as news of Australia's troubled time at the meeting was emerging, an article in The Australian indicated that China had told Pacific nations it recognises the, quote, legitimate demands, end quote, of small island countries on the climate change issue. China's special envoy to the Pacific, Wang Shufeng, was quoted as telling the forum in Tuvalu, Quote, no matter how the international situation evolves, China will always be a good friend, partner and brother of Pacific Island countries, end quote. And almost as if he were trolling Morrison personally, Wang said China would step up its climate change engagement with the region. Now, this must have been galling to the Prime Minister and his team, given Australia's use of coal-generated electricity is less than 3% of China's, and Pacific Island Forum countries seem less inclined to call out Beijing on this fact. Although, Darren, a lot of the coal-generated electricity in China is a result of the Australian coal exports. Yes, we do. We are one of the largest exporters of fossil fuels, that's true. Alan, maintaining our strategic position in the region seems like it's only going to get harder. 
Whereas we see climate change as an economic issue, or at least the government does, for these nations it's closer to national security, given that their very survival is at stake. When we misstep, Beijing is there to offer an alternative. What is the most effective way to conduct diplomacy with our South Pacific family in this new strategic environment? I think the way Morrison himself describes Australia's approach, that is talking about family, emphasising the importance of turning up, underlining Australia's commitment over the long haul, I think that's all right. He keeps emphasising that we don't see the region through the prism of strategic conflict with China. He's right to talk about people-to-people relations and civil society and church engagement. So I think that's a very solid framework for our policy. The problem for the government lies with Australian domestic politics. The PM leads a party with people in it who keep, for one reason or another, undermining the message, like Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack's offhand reference to fruit picking in Australia as a solution to climate change in the Pacific, and others in the party who keep reinserting China as the central aim of our policy, and he leads a coalition without a long-term agreed position on climate change and emissions reduction, and that imposes a heavy handicap on Australian policy. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we've definitely reached time, so let's finish up with our final brief segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what have you been reading, listening or watching? Look, I've just finished watching the brilliant HBO television series Chernobyl, which takes as its unlikely subject the terrible explosion of the Soviet nuclear plant in the Ukraine in April 1986 and the even more catastrophic cover-up that followed. I was working on the Soviet Union in ONA when the explosion occurred, and I can still remember our efforts to try to work out what was happening In some ways, as Kyle Gorbachev acknowledged later, the accident and the crime that followed represented the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet Union. The series is devastating to watch with accounts of some astonishing personal heroism by those who were responding on the ground and appalling cowardice by many of their bosses. If you want a perfect example of the consequences and dangers of authoritarian systems and the absence of free press, it's all there. I can't recommend it highly enough. Mm, Well, in this post-Game of Thrones world, I am looking for things to watch and I'm very excited that the BBC uh, is shortly going to bring out a new TV series that covers Philip Pullman's Dark Materials trilogy. So my recommendation is the first book in that trilogy, which I recently reread called The Golden Compass, or it's previously been called Northern Lights. It's a fabulously intelligent and engaging series. There was a movie made, starred Nicole Kibben and Daniel Craig about a decade ago, I think, um, but it was it didn't do very well because it's the kind of book and the kind of storyline that really requires, I think, you know, several TV episodes to flesh out fully. So I'm very excited by what the BBC will be doing with that. So The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank new AAA intern James Hayne for his help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Talk to you again soon.